Good morning. You can sit, probably. That's good, right? God, why do you love us? Have you looked down here lately? Have you seen the mess we've made of the gifts you have gave us? We're like bad children who break the toys and demand more. And you still, and still you love us? You say, don't touch the stove, and then we scream at you when we get burnt and still. Still, still you, you love us. You don't turn your back on us, even when we turn our backs on each other. Where does this love come from? Where can we learn to love like this? Anger is easy, but love? Fear, frustration, suffering, we've got these. But love, your kind of love, how is that even possible? We see the places that are empty. We see the places where love can make a difference. Is that what you saw, God? Is that what you see now? Is that why you sent your son? The candle of love. This light shows us where to give love. Show us the empty spaces in the world and in each other. Oh God, oh God let, let there be light. light that we might see. Then we share love and we are sharing God. God, give us love. For the love that you give us is eternal. Give us love when all we see is hate. Love that goes beyond the 70 times 7. Give us love when the world seems cold. Love when we see others in need. Love when Christmas feels like it's everything it's not. Love for each other so we can make a difference. Give us love when our cups feel empty. And let us share that love with others. Love that is contagious. Love that cares for the stranger. Love that gives blankets. Love that restores hope in Christ. We, we put, put our, our faith, faith in, in the Lord. We long for your presence and love. We long for you to be with us. Be with us. Amen. Emmanuel, God with us. Good morning. Merry Christmas. Let us celebrate well. Let's be able to laugh at ourselves to enjoy. And at the same time, take into consideration that this is a season that for so many people is the darkest. When we talk about the light of Christmas, this quite often becomes the darkest season of the year for so many people. People travel, people go away, they try to avoid sometimes what Christmas is for them. And so um, as we get started this, this section today, I just want to remind you of that, that you are around people that, that see this as a terrible time of year. And when we say it's the most joy, joyful time, it's the most wonderful time of the year, it's not wonderful because of what happens, it's wonderful because of what happened. We celebrate the birth of Jesus, and that's what makes it wonderful. Everything else going on, well, that's a whole other story. So as we start today, let's just take a moment to pray. There have been a number of deaths that have touched our family in the last couple of weeks. There have been a number of situations where things have come undone. Um, we know that there are hard things that people in our midst are, are struggling with right now. Um, special mention right now, we want to be praying for Phil and his family as his, uh, his father collapsed yesterday shoveling snow. Um, we know that this is something that can happen. And so we want to stand together as a family and not just say, you know, show must go on. 
No, the, the show must stop so that we can do what's really important. And so right now, I'd just like to ask that you would, you would pray with me as well. And when I say that, I don't mean just bow your head. I mean, pray with me. Okay? So let's do that. <coughs> kind Father, we come this morning to celebrate the birth of Jesus. We want to do everything that we can to lift up the name of Jesus. So that in doing that, you have said when we do that, you will draw all people to yourself. And this is our goal, that you would draw people to yourself. And in this season, more than any other, it seems that we want to help people draw near, that they might find hope. The reason that they need to find hope is because it looks like everything has gone wrong. This is not what I planned for. This is not the way I wanted my family to be. This is not the way I wanted my Christmas to be. This is not the way I wanted my job to be. And we are in the midst of tension. And so God, we, we just want to tell you the truth. We're depending on you and we acknowledge again we need a Savior. And if we know you already and we can say that, how much more so for the people that we come across? For the sickness that many are facing. God have mercy. Bring healing, bring hope. For the, for the bereavement that many are facing, God, have mercy. Bring hope. Give strength. For those who are facing unexpected things, like Phil and his family and, and Jim and Julie who uh, has to go to the hospital for her dad again today, God, we, we ask that you would be merciful, that we would have a sense of your presence, not a theological understanding that says that God is always, always around us, but that we would have a sense of the presence of your Spirit to bring comfort. For those who can't be here today because they're sick, because they're traveling, for whatever reason, God, we pray your blessing upon them as well. We have blessings to share because you have been so bountifully kind to us. Thank you for your mercy. Thanks for your grace. Thanks for your unending gifts, your constant blessing, your per perpetual provision. We are truly in debt to you, and yet there are still days when we feel our hands are empty. Guide us forward, we, we, we pray today, as we try to focus on you and to have you speak into us. To that end, God, I ask that you would speak to me today, that you would speak through me, shortly. For my friends that are here, God, I pray that you would speak to them as well and that you would help them to understand their priestly role as you would speak through them in their family gatherings and their places where they get together, wherever they go. Be among us, be upon us. We acknowledge you are for us and in us. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Um, so I want to tell you a couple of things. Obviously, you've noticed there's some stuff going on outside. We've got shingles done. We've done some window stuff in here, window stuff downstairs. Still more roofing stuff to happen outside. Um, soffits, fascia, eaves trough should all be coming fairly shortly as well. Inside, we have an electrician who started working, trying to get rid of all of our knob and tube wiring. That's been done. We've got some new pot lights in here. I want you to see those things. I want you to know that there's more stuff that's coming. But I need to emphasize to you again, especially in this season, this is the decoration. The building is a tapestry, but it's, it's for 
you and it's for the empty seats that are beside you. It's for the people that are not yet here. It's for us that we would be able to use this as our base camp for mission, that we would be involved in ministry. And so we're not doing these things because that's what the church is about. You are the church. You are the ones that bring to life. You are the hands and feet of Jesus. And so we are asking that you would also participate in the renovation of the spiritual heart, the spiritual place that needs to come to life. And so I have a number of places that I wanted to invite you to be involved. There are things that you can do that you will be able to um, be the hands and feet of Jesus wherever you go. The church of Jesus Christ doesn't exist just when we gather, very much when we expand and we go out. This is the way it works. But here, Sunday mornings, 9.30, if you would come and pray that what we do would be significant, that what we do would be anointed by the Holy Spirit, we would love to have you here. And as the new year comes upon us, if you would like to start that new year with some spiritual discipline, I want to give you a new option. And I know it won't work for everybody. Wednesdays, 12 to 1, this place will be a place of silence and prayer. Silence, stillness, as much solitude as having people together in the same place can allow for. But in this place, allow yourself to drink from what God would provide for you. These are ways that we can get involved and we can make a difference. Um, there, there, there are a number of different things that uh, we wanted to have that opportunity for you. If you have never sat in silence before God, I highly recommend it. It sounds ridiculous, I know, until you do it. I started last week. I told the electrician, you got to go away. You can't work. I'm here for this silent time. It was wonderful. I... It was good. Okay, let me just move on. Sorry, please be involved in that. All right. Um, yeah. <sighs> you have notes that you got when you came in. I hope some of you got also invitations for a Christmas Eve service. Those are for you. We'd like you to come on Christmas Eve. But those are for you to hand out to someone else. We'd like them to come on Christmas Eve as well. 6 p.m. You can follow along with what we're going to do today in the notes that are in there. There'll be notes up on the screens for you today. And we got all three again. We are going to have the notes uh, on your iPhones or your, your um, devices if you'd like as well. Use the free app called Uversion, and you can follow along with our notes. And as you do that, you'll be able to see all the announcements that are there. You'll also have the link for online giving. I know many of you have given during the week already, so thank you very much before you even came here. We also have the new uh, ability to uh, text give, which is super convenient convenient and easy. If you like to use the envelope system, at the back we have envelopes there and you can just put it all in the white box and that's our communication box and that's how we can um, just collect that for you. Make sure your tax receipted. There you go. Now, I know that parting is such sweet sorrow and this is the final week of our series right in the eye. I know that it makes you sad just to think that it will come to an end. But if you've missed all of it or any part of it, you can catch up on the website at intoone.ca. Look under the media section and there's podcast. Or just go straight to iTunes and you can just search Into One Community Church and up will pop. So you don't need to feel left out this Christmas if you don't know everything we've talked about. We've got it all wrapped up nice and ready for you. You can download it whenever it's convenient for you. To take us back to the very beginning, we started, do you remember week one? We started with that HBO miniseries R-rated story. It, you already want to know what that is, right? So if you didn't hear it, you got to go back and hear what that was. It, it set the tone for everything that was coming. 
And honestly, that story is one of the most disturbing stories in all of ancient literature. So well recorded in all of its gruesomeness and all of its horribleness. And that was the very end of the book of Judges. This story helps us to see um, that there's clearly a little bit of that in all of us. And now we have a bit of a problem. We've, we've reworded it. And what we say now is that it's, well, it's the North American dream. The, the, the dream that I want is to do what I want, when I want, with who I want. And if we're going to be a little bit North American, we'll put at the end of it, as long as nobody gets hurt. But that's our mindset. That's what we say. That's what we want to do. And this idea comes up repeatedly through this series. We've talked about it again and again because at this period in ancient Israel's history, it's just what everybody did. That's the way they all lived. And at the end of the book of Judges, we get that story and that leads into the final statement, the summary statement for that period of history, the summary section of that about 300 years. And it looks like this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did was right in his own eyes. And we've spent a bunch of time looking at this because there is a bunch of that in you. There's a bunch of that in me. God had established the nation of Israel to do something extraordinary. And instead of being eyes up and eyes on God and following what he would say, the nation of Israel was eyes all around. And they looked at the people around them. And they lived from the outside in instead of from the inside out. And so they saw what they wanted. And what they saw what they wanted, then they knew what they wanted. And so they went after what they saw. And they decided in doing that, I want to be just like everybody else. I'll just be what they're like. And this wasn't a single day kind of event. They did this time after time after time. It's a series of cycles that went on for about 300 years. And they would disobey God. And then they would face the consequences for their sin. And they'd get into trouble. And, and then they'd come back to God. And they'd come back crying. And they'd say, oh God, please help us. Please help us. We're sorry. Please get us out of this mess. Will you give me just one more try? And in that cycle, we hear ourselves. We've made this prayer. We've said the same sort of things. And God would come and he would bail the nation of Israel out over and over and over again because he had made a promise. And his promise has nothing to do with what we do. It was a promise that he made on his own. And he said to the nation, I am going to use you to change the world whether you want to be used or not. I'm going to use you to reach the Gentiles with you, whether you want it or not. Again, I will say, let there be light and let that light come through these, my chosen people. He says that to you today also. But he says, I'm going to use you, Israel, to bless all the world you can work with me and be blessed all over the place. Or you can watch me work. But I will fulfill my promises. So in this dark, dark time in history, God continued to work in spite of the fact that the nation continued to abandon God by doing what was right in their own eyes. And in that season, in that time, God was decorating for Christmas. I'm not making this up. That's what happened. You know it's been a, a dark, dark time of history. We, we, we studied it week after week. It's just, it's just chaos after corruption, after decadence, after selfishness. It just 
all went wrong. And right in the middle of this swamp, right in the middle of Israel losing faith in God, when Israel had decided that those stories that their parents told us about Egypt and miracles and plagues and Father Abraham, well, maybe they're all just myths that they told us to make us behave. And they started to come to the place where they would say, God is not alive. God is not active in our nation. God has nothing to do with our world. And right in the middle of that darkness, they're turning away from God. God is preparing the table for the very first Christmas. And no one saw this coming. And he uses two very interesting slash unlikely people to do this. He used a woman who was angry at God. A woman who was so disappointed in God that she declared to her town, God has abandoned me. God has forsaken me. When I look at my circumstances, there is no evidence that there is a God. There's no evidence that God cares for me. Maybe that's how you feel. Maybe that's how someone you're going to be with at Christmas feels. And then God uses a man who was extraordinary in the sense that even though he looked around and he saw no evidence of God's activity, no evidence of God's faithfulness, he decided to buck the system. He decided to swim against the stream. He decided to defy the surrounding culture. He decided to remain faithful to God because he believed that God was at work even when he couldn't see God at work. And God brought this man and this woman together. And in doing so, he saved and set the table for Christmas. Again, maybe this is something that you can be involved in in the next couple of weeks for your family, for your friends. Maybe those estranged family members can meet in a different environment because of what you will bring to the table. Now, the story that we're going to look at today, I'm going to ask you to guess, follow the plan that we've been on. What book is this, what, what Old Testament book is this story going to come from? Oh, you're cheating. You're supposed to say judges. Wow, we're a little weak today. You're supposed to say judges. Well, you're wrong. It's the book of Ruth. <laughs> many, many you come across this story, you hear it in little bits, it comes up in the Sunday school story, always separate. But you might not realize this, it's not just close to the book of Judges, it actually takes place in the time of the Judges. The story of Ruth is in the midst of that dark time. It's just a longer story, so it's pulled out, and it doesn't feature a judge, so it doesn't fall in the book of Judges. But that's what we've been talking about over the last six weeks, getting to this direction. This is in the context of this dark, dark time in Israel's history, that something important is going to happen. And we say, coincidence? I think not. This is the way God works repeatedly. When it doesn't seem like he's doing something, he's doing something. So this story is right in the middle, and it's like a bright spot. It's like an exception to the darkness of the rest of the time. When everyone else was doing what was right in their own eyes, this happens. When everybody else was looking around and trying to be like everybody else, this happens. And this was God's way of preparing for Christmas. 
Christmas is always best understood with the interplay between light and darkness. Let there be light. Right? That's what we're calling, that's the, the, the theme that we have for Christmas Eve this year, and it's almost here. So who are you bringing? Who will you share light with this year? We're going to start this story, uh, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. So if you want to follow along, you can do that. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem. Huh? Imagine that. You never noticed that tie-in before, did you? Man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now, if you can visualize the Holy Land, it would look something like this. Blammo! Blammo! Thank you. There we go. And we're looking at the green section at the bottom. I know it's completely impossible to read, okay? I already know that. Green section is Judah. The top of the green section is Bethlehem. And right beside it, it kind of looks purpley, but it's supposed to be blue. That's the Dead Sea. Okay? And then the little brown part at the very bottom that's got that little arm out that looks like, come visit me. That's Moab. Okay? So they're going to start in Bethlehem and they're going to get their way over to Moab. Um, yeah. Verse 2. The man's name, this is a passage again that you're very glad that you're not reading. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife was Naomi. And the names of their two sons were Malon and Kilion. And they were from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. So we've got Naomi, and we've got Elimelech, and the boys, and they're all getting packed up, and they're going on this extended road trip. The reason they're going is that um, there's famine in all of Judah. There's no food in, in Bethlehem, and so they need to go to find someplace where they can work, and they can eat, and they can survive, and so they truck it around over to there. The boys, though, as we get them on this road, they're getting of that age. And so it's time to marry them off. we got to do something about that. you got to deal with the things as they come. But they run into a bit of a glitch, okay? They are in Moab, and all the women in Moab are Moabites. And God's law that came through Moses said, don't marry foreign women. And we say time out again. All right, we mentioned this before, but it's important every single time. This has nothing to do with interracial marriage, okay? It's not talking about that at all. It's all about getting mixed up with other gods. The girls can't leave home without their gods. They have to pack them. They have to put them in their suitcases. Daddy says they have to. And so when they leave, they've got to take the gods with them. So when you intermarry, you're bringing the other gods in. That was the idea. And God's trying to keep Israel pure so that they won't get distracted and they won't get diffused, confused. Because we've seen what happens. When they get distracted and confused, they turn their eyes off God, they look at what's around them, and they do bad things. Those bad things lead to crisis. Those crises are the problems that come up. And this is the cycle that goes on because then they cry out, God help us, and he delivers them. But they keep doing it. So he says, don't mix yourself up with other gods, and then we don't get into the same sort of problems. But hey, what are you going to do? We're in Moab, and when in Moab, you just do what the Moab bites do. So they get their two sons. They marry them off to two Moabite women. Time passes. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies. You might have to write down these names because we're family tree in here pretty fast. Time passes, Elimelech dies, so now it's Naomi, her two sons, and her two daughters-in-law. Then, 
Her oldest son dies. Then her youngest son dies. And now she's a Jewish woman living in Moab, and the only family that she has around her are two daughters-in-law, and they're both Moabites. Well, Naomi decides, God's against me. God has cursed me. She decides to leave Moab to go back to Bethlehem. So she turns to her daughters-in-law and she says, look, girls, I'm so sorry you got mixed up in all of this lousiness. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. You stay here. Get remarried. Have a nice life. God has obviously abandoned me, and I don't want you to get caught up in all of that, okay? And so one of the young ladies decides to stay in Moab, and so now she retires from the story. The other daughter-in-law is Ruth, and Ruth decides to stay with Naomi. And this is a big deal. This is a very, very dangerous decision. And things aren't like, they weren't like what they are now. This is a very dangerous world for women. And I guess that's not really the best way to say it because it, it continues to be, in some places, a very dangerous world for women. Much of the world today stays that way. But in ancient times, it was even more dangerous. But Ruth said to Naomi, I'm going to stay with you. And then Naomi says, no, 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 bad idea. You'll be in a foreign land. These are my people, not your people. Eventually, I'm going to die. And then you'll be a Moabite widow in Bethlehem. It's hard enough being an Israelite widow. But forget about any help if you're a Moabite widow. It's just too dangerous for you, okay? You're a nice girl. I like you, but you just stay here. Get yourself married again. And this is where we get that famous passage in Ruth. One of those most beautiful, tender passages that stays alive in ancient literature, not just the Bible. It's a beautiful, beautiful passage, and I'm sure you've heard it. It comes up at marriages all the time. This is what Ruth says to Naomi. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Naomi, I'm going with you. So Ruth, the young Moabite widow, travels with Naomi, the old Israelite widow, all the way to Bethlehem. And they survive that long journey and they roll into town and people begin to whisper and say, isn't that Naomi? And I think that's Naomi. And who's with Naomi? So eventually they come to her. They find her and they ask her, Oh my goodness, Naomi, it's been so long. Where have you been? What's been happening? Catch me up on everything. It's been years. And then they get an answer that they're not really expecting. She says, Don't call me Naomi. Now you call me Mara, which means bitter. I'm no longer Naomi, I'm bitter. I say, so why are you so bitter? Her answer was, the Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. There is no God, and if there is a God, He doesn't know my name or like me. There is no God, and if there is a God, He doesn't hear me or care about any of my prayers. And all of these stories that we've heard about God if all of them are true, then clearly that God is not interested in me. And in a moment, she became just like Samson, a microcosm of the nation of Israel. They have been saying, God is no longer the God of Israel. God has abandoned the nation. 
But here's something interesting. 3,500 years later, we know her name. She is one of the very, very few women in that period of ancient history whose name has survived. Her story has survived. God God not only had not abandoned her, she was about to be at the crux point of a key moment in the activity of God that would reset history going forward. She just didn't know it. She just didn't see it yet. You just never know what God is up to, even when you don't sense him moving, even when you don't see what's going on. Okay, back to the story. we got Naomi and Ruth. They arrived back in Bethlehem, and they came just in time for barley harvest season. Landowners there, they have acres and acres of land on which they planted barley, very well done. And at harvest time, they unleash their servants. Go out, harvest the barley. And one of the commands, the laws of Moses, was that you can only harvest your field one time. So you send your servants out, they go through the field one time. Anything that's left over, you just leave it on the ground. And then the poor and the widows are allowed to come and collect as much as they can. They take what's left over. And this was one of the ways that God had set up a care for the poor program. So Naomi says, Ruth, we can't survive unless we do something. And because of my age, what I'm really saying is you. You need to do something. You need to help us out. So go join the the poor and the widows. Because don't forget, Ruth is a widow too. Join those who can go, who are allowed to go, pick up what you can so we can use it for food or we can use it to, to sell and then we'll be able to survive. So Ruth goes out to one of these random fields and it's very, very dangerous to be out there in the middle of a field, a woman alone, scattered around over acres and acres in this male-dominated society. She's got no protector in the field and she's got no protector at home because she's a foreigner. She's a Moabite widow alone in Israelite territory. Well, just so happens that she chooses a field of a landowner named Boaz. And Boaz heads out into his fields, and he sees this foreign woman. And so he asks, how come we have a foreign woman out there amongst all these Israelite women? How come they're all out gleaning? Buddy, who is that? And so the guy says, oh, you must mean Ruth. She's the daughter-in-law of Naomi. Now, some story had been circulating already about this strange Moabite woman who had chosen to remain faithful to her mother-in-law of all people. She did that, and in doing that, it meant that she left all of her people behind. She left her country behind. She left her city behind. She made this dangerous trek around the Dead Sea into Israel and all the way into Bethlehem. And rumors had been going around about this Moabite woman. And Boaz was impressed. And so he has a conversation with her. Ruth 2 now. I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. She's never ever been to this place of the world before. She's not a traveler that went around. You stay where you are, right? So she's in a whole new section. Now what he does out of this is so out of character for for what's happening in the rest of this judge's time period. It's so not what everybody else is doing. 
He says, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz still believes in this God. And he still believes that this God is a God of honor. I still believe that God will honor those who make the right decisions. The God of Israel, that's the one who's supposed to do this blessing. That's the same God that Naomi had just told everyone, he's abandoned me. And then Boaz turns to his servants and he says to them, don't molest her, okay? Don't bug her in any way. Leave her alone. She's under my care right now. Let her take all that she wants to take. Don't bother her. She's an honorable woman. She has done and is doing an honorable thing. She's not just a foreigner who wandered into our land and is trying to take advantage of our generosity. Treat her with respect. So after that, she's well-treated, and she's very successful in her gleaning. And she eventually ends up having a conversation with her mother-in-law, Naomi, who says, where are you going and who did you meet? You keep coming back with such a good collection. And Ruth says, well, I found favor with a man in the city, and his name is Boaz. And Naomi says, Boaz? Seriously, Boaz? He's a distant relative of my late husband. So time passes. Things are working out, and Naomi is getting older. Ruth is getting older. Uh, everyone's getting older. So finally, Naomi one day says, Lou, Ruth, look, girl, uh, you need to get married, all right? I'm going to die, and when I do, you're going to have no one. You're going to be on your own. You need a covering. You need someone who validates you or protects you or makes it okay for you to be here. You need to get married. You need someone who will be in charge of taking care of you. So Naomi has decided that Ruth needs to find what they call a kinsman redeemer. And this is a really big, uh, big deal. And so we need to stop for a second and just deal with this because it doesn't exist in our culture at all. So it's not the same, but think of a kinsman redeemer as your rich uncle. Okay, maybe not your uncle, maybe it's your brothers, sisters, cousins, you know, someone who's in the family, but maybe not tied to you. And they've, they've done a little bit better than other people. They've got a little bit more financial liquidity. And so if there's ever a real problem in the family, we all say, you know, things went sideways, but don't worry if things are bad, we can always call on Ralph. So call up Ralph and Ralph will help. The kinsman redeemer was that wealthy person in the extended family. When the family has trouble, they go to. But he did not have to step in and help a person, right? He's not obligated. So essentially, there are four things that a kinsman redeemer could be asked to do. The first thing is to protect the impoverished family. There's, there's loans. Uh, I had to renovate my house because a tree fell on it. Um, I need to pay off my new outrageous electrical bill. Help me out. I need to repurchase lost property. There's liens. Uh, property was seized. Um, gambling debt, uh, collection services have come in. Help us get back out of where we were. Redeem relatives sold as slaves. If I owe too much money and I didn't get to my kinsman redeemer early enough, um, I can't make payment. The way that payment was taken is either me or one of my kids will be sold into slavery to pay off the debt. So this is one of the earliest places we track here of, of human trafficking. It started way back then. This kinsman redeemer might come in and pay that somebody some money 
so that they could free your children or one of your other relatives from slavery. The last thing, and this one only came up really, really rarely, just in extreme situations, they would provide an heir for male relatives. So they'd be filling in for a male relative. So remember, Boaz is related to Elimelech, not to Naomi. So the line travels through Elimelech. For that line to continue, there needs to be a male heir to ensure that the family line continues. So Naomi says to Ruth, you need to go find this kinsman redeemer guy. And Ruth has no idea how this can happen or even what Naomi is talking about. Okay? This, this type of a caregiver was an Israelite thing and, it, and it's not really well known. It's all foreign to her. She says, it's not my country. I'm not from here. I'm not an Israelite. I'm not Jewish. I got no other family here. I've got no source, nothing to reference me. I'm in a foreign city. I'm in a foreign nation. How can this happen? And for this to work, the kinsman redeemer would actually have to marry Ruth. Naomi is too old, and so she cannot extend the family line. But daughter-in-law follows married to the son. The heir can continue through there, and there must be a male heir. So we also discover that uh, Naomi's former husband, Elimelech, had a little piece of property that had been lost, and that will need to be purchased back as well. So in our terms, Naomi says, Ruth, you need to kind of get up your courage and go kind of Sadie Hawkins. Go over and talk to Boaz and say, you need to marry me. you got to say, Boaz, will you be our kinsman redeemer? And in doing that, in that culture, it's equal to a marriage proposal. So I've heard this over time, um, the way the story is told. And because we live in a highly sexualized culture, sometimes people read things into this story that just aren't there. This is not a matter that Ruth is some young Moabite hottie trying to find herself a sugar daddy who's already got some aging widow or aging wives, not widows because he's still married to them. Uh, he's not just looking for a young fling kind of thing. That's not what's going on here. There is no time in this story whatsoever that any character says, hey baby, all right? That's just not the kind of story that this is. And I've heard it told that way and it's inaccurate. It's the exact opposite. Being a kinsman redeemer is a very risky venture for anyone, but especially for a foreign woman. Once she became part of the estate, that man is now responsible for that woman. And that man is now responsible for that woman's children and the behavior of those children. And if something happened to your sons, a large portion of, of your um, estate would have to go to this person that you have chosen to include in your family. It's a very, very risky, very sacrificial decision for anybody to make. Now, in this story, you have to be able to step out for a moment and hear some of the long-term spiritual implications of what's happening. This is a picture of the nation of Israel and God, and God including non-Jews, Gentiles, way, way back in the early part of the Old Testament. This is the way our God is. He includes. So Ruth, there's, there's a powerful narrative about how she goes through this, and I'm going to let you read it for yourself. The whole book of Ruth is not very long. You could read it this afternoon easily. Okay, so what I'm saying is go ahead, read your Bible. Sure, it's all right. You won't get in trouble. Go ahead and, and read it. 
And Ruth's thinking to herself, in the most appropriate way, how do I go to Boaz? How do I say that without causing incredible offense? I've got to be humble, but I've also got to go with the idea that the guy's most likely going to say no. It's one thing for me to glean in his field. It's one thing for him to protect me from his servants. But to marry me? To bring my family and all of my family liabilities, all of my family that live across the Dead Sea that he's never even met, to bring all of that into his family, that's a huge deal. So she goes to him and she requests, Boaz, would you be my kinsman redeemer? You know, sort of head down. And he says, yes, but, yeah, there's always a but. There's one little hitch. The hitch is there's a relative that's actually closer to the line, closer to Naomi than I am. And the way the system works is that he has the first right of refusal. He's got first dibs on the estate and on you, Ruth. So he tells this to Ruth, and then he says, but don't worry, I'll go and talk to him. So remember, Boaz is an honorable man. All the way down the line, the way he works. He's not trying to do anything behind the scenes. He's not trying to sneak anything by. He says, we're going to play by the rules. We're going to trust the process. We'll obey the law that God established, even though everybody else has abandoned God. Even though everybody else just does whatever they want. They do what's right in their own eyes. And so Boaz goes and meets this other, other guy, and they go to the city gate, because the city gate is where you do business. And he meets with this gentleman, and he says, Naomi, through Ruth, has come and asked me to be the kinsman redeemer. There's a property that needs to get purchased. As part of that property, there comes Naomi and Ruth, and whatever they have, and whoever they're related to. That's all part of the deal. So she asked me to ask you if you would be willing to be her kinsman redeemer. So, are you willing? And here's the conversation. Ruth chapter 4, verse 5. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the deed with his property. So if you get the property, which is a good deal, you also get the Moabite woman. Not sure if that's a good deal. And you will have to at least try to have children with her. And if she has a son, then that son gets an inheritance out of your estate. And you get the aging widow, Naomi. So, are you willing to do that? At this, the guardian redeemer, just another word, it's the same person, guardian redeemer, kinsman redeemer, avenger. They use the same, the, the words differently, but it's the same person. Then, uh, I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. It's too risky. I don't know her. I don't know her Moabite family. I have no idea who's going to suddenly show up outside my door one day. I don't know what will happen to my own sons. Having somebody like that around, that's going to make Christmas awkward. It's complicated. If you want her, you take her. No thanks. And Boaz, an honorable man who recognizes the honor in Ruth, who honored Naomi, her mother-in-law, the same mother-in-law who has decided that God has abandoned me and I am now bitter. The Almighty has forgotten me. Boaz marries Ruth. And that could be the end of the story. 
The one honorable man in the culture did the honorable thing. He takes a risk on a Moabite widow to honor his distant relatives and God and to make sure that she now has a covering and protection. End of story. Beautiful story. Except the story's not really about Boaz and Ruth. The story is about God. And God made a promise to Israel. And God always keeps his promises. And even though Israel wasn't going to cooperate, God did not back down from what he had promised. Ruth and Boaz get married, and they have a son, and his name is Obed. And Obed grows up and gets married. And there's a tender part where Naomi is holding the baby, Obed, and she looks at this baby and says, God was faithful to me after all. I gave up on God. I decided that God had abandoned me. But I see that God is alive and that God has allowed me to live long enough to hold this baby. I have seen God redeem me and my family. Then Naomi dies. And then Boaz dies. And eventually Ruth dies. And Obed grows up and he gets married and he has a son. And Obed's son is named Jesse. And Jesse grows up and he gets married and he has a whole bunch of sons. And years go by. And one day God speaks to the prophet Samuel. Samuel, I'm about to do something new in the nation of Israel. I'm about to begin a brand new era in the nation of Israel. I'm about to do something that will have implications for thousands of years. And Samuel, I never work alone. We have been working together in partnership for years, and I have a new project. And you and I, we're going to work on this new project together. So 1 Samuel 16, he tells Samuel, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Jesse, the son of Obed. Obed, the son of Boaz, who took a risk and married a Moabite widow in an era when it seemed like God had abandoned everyone. And so Samuel shows up and says, Jesse, I need you to line up all your sons because God has chosen one of your sons to be king. So that's a good day, right? When the chief prophet in the land comes to your house and says, one of your sons is about to be king, you don't even care which one, right? You say, just just take one, right? Because whoever it is, any way you look at it, you're going to be the father of the king. So the story goes that Jesse lines up all his sons, and Samuel looks at the oldest, the one who kind of looks kingly, and he says, nope, not that one. So next one, not him. Number three, yeah, God says no. And they went all the way down the line, and Samuel says to Jesse, I'm pretty sure I have the right house. Do you have any more sons? And Jesse says, well, yeah, there's one more. He's uh, he's the youngest. He's out in the field. Samuel, I'm just going to tell you, he's not the king. And Samuel says, I will not sit down until you bring him in. And then onto the pages of history walks David, the second king of Israel, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the husband of Ruth, the Moabite, who was faithful to her mother-in-law. And years go by and another prophet, Nathan, appears to David and he speaks on behalf of God. And here's what he said to King David, 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And from this prophecy, the Jewish people and everyone from that day knew that if there was going to be a Messiah, if there was going to be a Savior of the world, if he was going to come If there was going to be a king that would reign forever, that king would come from the lineage and the line of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the husband of Ruth, the Moabite widow. And David has a son who had a son who had a son and 24 more generations, 25 begats later. According to the gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, than the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Following the line, following the promise, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, is born, and that's who we celebrate. That's what we celebrate on Christmas Day. And throughout the life, his life, Jesus would be referred to as the Son of God, but he was also known as Jesus, the Son of David, because he was born in the city of David, Bethlehem, the home of Naomi, who would bring a Moabite woman to marry Boaz, who would have a son, who would have a son, who would have sons, and many years later, Jesus was born. And so that's how Boaz and Ruth, or Ruthie and Bo, saved Christmas. And here's the amazing thing. When Jesus was born all those years later, wise men sought him out. And they announced to his family, they announced to anyone who would listen, that it's not just a baby that's being born. A king had been born. And not only did they believe it was the king, the reigning king of Israel, Herod, believed that it was a king. And he did everything that he could to stamp out that king right when he was being born. And again, many years later, Jesus would stand before Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, appointed by Tiberius, the emperor of Rome. And Pontius Pilate said to Jesus, just moments before sending him to his execution, he said, are you a king? And Jesus, he looks him right in the face and he stared down all the power of Rome and he said, it is as you say. I am a king. I was born for this. But don't misunderstand, Pilate. John 18, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's a kingdom of the heart. I'm not simply the king of the Jews. I have come to reign and to rule into the hearts of people from every nation. It's not a kingdom of this world. It's a kingdom of the heart. It's a kingdom of conscience. No longer will you be ruled by the kingdom of covet. I have come to reign and to rule through men and women all over the world. Yes, I am a king, but not a king as you think. In that time and in that place, everyone knew Pontius Pilate. He was feared and revered. He had the power of life and death over people. But as time passes, he is just just a footnote to the story of Jesus. You would never, ever have heard of the name Pontius Pilate 
if it wasn't for King Jesus. Jesus, the king who leveraged his power for the powerless. Jesus, the king who did what no other king ever thought of or imagined, never thought of doing, instead of requiring his followers to die for him. He would be the king that would turn it all around and turn it upside down. He laid down his life for his followers. And he's the king that gives every single one of us the opportunity and the invitation to invite him to reign and to rule in our hearts today. He does not force himself on you. He gently, humbly allows you to choose him as your king. And whereas it took God hundreds of years to prepare for the first Christmas, in a single decision, you can become part of that story. You in a single decision, can take hundreds of years worth of preparation and suddenly make it personal and individual for you when you decide to yield your heart to your Creator King. And when you yield your heart to your Savior, the King, the Lord, the Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we conclude this series and we go out to, and enjoy and to celebrate this incredible season I want to invite you to consider doing something that you perhaps have never done before. And that's simply decide. God, instead of me sitting on the throne of my heart, doing what I want to do, when I want to do it, with who I want to do it, I want to recognize Jesus as my king. I want to yield the throne to him. I want to invite him to, to live, to reign, and to rule in my life. I will no longer live from that kingdom on the outside in, but now I want to invest and be from the inside out. And if you will invite him to do that, and as you learn to live with your hands and your heart open wide, your eyes up, choosing not to be distracted by all that's around you, your heavenly Father, through his Son, Jesus Christ, will revolutionize you on the inside, and he will revolutionize your life and your lifestyle on the outside. But unlike every other king, he will not force you to submit. He stands outside and he knocks on the door and he waits for you to invite him in. And if you've never done that, I want to give you the opportunity to do that today. And if you've been a long time separated from God and church and from the things, um, what you've been doing and you've been focusing your life, heart and soul on living to do what you want, when you want, with whom you want. And if you've come to the place where you're noticing that it just is not working out for me, and you're wondering right now, could God ever really take me back? The answer is absolutely. That's what we have seen a time and time again in the book of Judges. Repeatedly, the people rebelled, and repeatedly, God, their heavenly Father, took them back. So whether it's the first time or whether it's a renewal for you, I want to lead you in a prayer. And these words aren't magic words. The words really don't matter. This is just an opportunity for you to express to your heavenly Father that you are yielding the throne of your life to your Lord, our King, our Messiah, our Savior, Jesus Christ. You can pray this in your heart or you can pray this out loud. Would you please bow your head as a sign of reverence? And then close your eyes to help you focus. And pray with me. Kind Father, I believe Jesus is your son. 
I believe he is the king and I want him to become my king. Right now, I choose to yield the throne of my heart to him. I believe that when he died, he died for me. I believe that when he died, he took my sin. Please forgive me for my clear rebellion and for the times I accidentally rebelled. Open my eyes that I can see the world the way you see it. Because if I can see what you see, then I'll be more able to do as you say. Open my eyes so that I can see myself the way that you see me as extraordinary. And give me the wisdom and the courage to know what to do from this day forward. I yield all of me to you. In Jesus' name, amen.